Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia, on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device, across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. Joining me today is one of Australia's pre-eminent broadcast journalists, Geraldine Doog. Geraldine was originally a newspaper journalist in Perth, working as a cadet for the West Australian, before going on to work in the UK as the London correspondent for Rupert Murdoch's The Australian. Upon her return to Australia in the early 1980s, Geraldine began a decades-long relationship with the ABC when she became the Perth host of Nationwide, a news and current affairs programme. Geraldine soon moved to Sydney to host the New South Wales edition of the programme, And when the ABC decided to shake up their news and current affairs offering in 1985, Geraldine was chosen to co-anchor The National with Richard Moorcroft. During a spell away from the ABC in the late 1980s, Geraldine co-anchored 10 Eyewitness News with Steve Liebman and hosted her own radio show on 2UE. Returning to the public broadcaster in 1990, Geraldine played a central role in ABC TV's coverage of the first Gulf War and received two Penguin Awards and a United Nations Media Peace Prize for her work. In the late 90s, she became the host of Compass, where each week she investigated spirituality, philosophy and belief. Although stepping down as host in 2017, she continues to host five specials each year for the program. It is, however, Geraldine's work with ABC Radio National that she has come to be best known for. In 1992, she became the founding host of Life Matters, a role she held until her departure in 2003, and since 2005, she has hosted Saturday Extra, where each week, Geraldine keeps us expertly informed on both foreign affairs and pressing domestic issues. She joins me now in studio. Geraldine Duke, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you, Tina. Now, in in terms of media coverage, the pandemic has very much dominated the headlines in 2020. But in truth, uh, there's been some absolutely extraordinary stories from all around the world over the last 12 months, uh, stories that you yourself have often covered on Saturday Extra. I'd be interested to hear which stories from 2020 are the ones that stand out to you, pandemic aside. (laughs) Well, look, I think the dramas around Brexit have been just extraordinary. Um, I'm a real Anglophile, not an Americophile. So I suppose it's odd that I don't first of all nominate the amazing year that the Americans have been through. But I made a decision that I wasn't going to let that man suck all the oxygen out of our stories. I thought there was a tremendous risk, and frankly, I think I was proven right, that people would that you know there'd be just so much done on him that it would become vaguely addictive mm-hmm. um, and that we'd, we'd, um, we wouldn't see so much else that was happening. Now actually I have to admit a lot of the population also became addicted to the Trump story mm-hmm. I came to understand and I don't know whether we fully satisfied them but there were so many other programs giving you know nine out of ten to him that I decided that I thought we had to look much more at the changes in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also think that the China story. I'm I'm fascinated by the, the China story, and the China and the Asia story. Like, if I I really believe that if we should be as fascinated by what's happening in the Chinese Politburo as we are with what's happening with Mitch McConnell, you know, absolutely, no, completely. <laughs> it just stuns me that people. It just tells me an awful lot, of course, about our cultural roots and about where we see ourselves, but it's still happening. People will, you know, 
just have the most amazing focus on granular details about um, America uh, and take their eyes off vital things that are happening in Asia. But there we are. That's So we, think, I just chip away at that. Do you think the media is going to need some sort of a, I don't know, like a a media methadone, like a Trump methadone kind of clinic after he leaves office? Or do you, like, it feels like people are so obsessed with him uh, in that sense on both sides of reporting. Uh, I mean, how are they going to go, do you think? I don't know. Very good question. I can think of several instantly who I think, in fact, I said to one young man, look, this story will probably be over before you think, and that was two years into Trump, and I personally thought it was doubtful. Well, actually, I didn't even think he'd last the whole time, so I was wrong, but he was voted out. Um, and I said, you know, that you don't, don't just get yourself too hoist on one thing. You know, you've got to think of yourself in a broad way. But I think it'll be fascinating to watch people who won't have the, the daily Trump fix, uh, tweet fix, and... People became so hooked on drama and emotion Mm -hmm. and sensation. And it is going to be more humdrum. In fact, there'll be huge challenges, but it'll be more humdrum. So I'm waiting to see precisely that dilemma that you posed, how it turns out. How do you think it'll go? How do I think it'll go? Uh, Well, I I think it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned that with the, say, for instance, with the tweeting. I I don't think they are going to have a lack of of tweets from him because I think he's still going to be uh, quite vocal um, in his... But he won't matter, though. Not not to the same extent. I mean, what I think is really the most concerning thing is that he's... He has opened up a, pu- a dialogue, a public dialogue in life, and he has shifted the paradigm in terms of uh, the level of partisanship that we have in politics and reporting. Mm. And I think, yeah, the public, I think the discussion that he's opened up in public life is uh, going to be quite extremely concerning. I don't think that's mm. going to go away. But I do think there's going to be a number of journalists who are... Uh, uh, yeah, I think walking around feeling a little bit lost without having a Trump to report on with the same veracity, you know. So I, I think it'll be very interesting. Mm. Ta- talking about that, I mean, because we are living in this time of hyperpolarization and and often partisanship when it comes to media and reporting, I'd be interested in your thoughts on former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd calling for royal commission into the Murdoch media um, as although it was a very different time but you actually worked for one of Rupert Murdoch's papers I did uh, you were the London correspondent for the Australian I was and then this. I came back and worked on the Australian in, in Perth for a right. year right mm. okay right and you because you started your career as well at the West Australian that's right but it, Murdoch um, to my knowledge didn't own it at that point no no he no? didn't and there was no Murdoch in WA when I began right. it was very much the, in fact it was a local WA newspapers and then it was sold to the Herald and Weekly Times group yeah. long before Rupert was owning that. Um, so I worked for them in London for News Limited of Australia, opposite um, Bouver- it's the famous Sun. We, we our offices were in Bouvery Street, EC4, right. and then we we so look. Um, I actually think that Kevin Rudd has done a very good thing. I mean, whether I think I, n- I never thought he'd get a royal commission, but mm-hmm. he has now got a Senate Select Committee. Mm-hmm. Into I think it's you know it's become nicely called media concentration or something or other. <laughs> um, look, I happen to think that it. Uh, my critique of the Murdoch Group is that they have attempted to bring that hyperpolarization of the U.S., which is pertinent in the U.S. I accept that they've tried to impose that in Australia. They've they've decided that that is valid. 
and that it, it, it sells papers and things. I, I just don't agree. Well, it may, it may sell papers for all I know, although I think what it tends to do is to probably narrow their base. Like they need to broaden just the way they accuse the ABC of not being sufficiently mm-hmm. concerned outside its own little tribe. It's the same critique you could make of, of uh, News Limited. Um, look, I actually think Rudd had nothing to lose mm-hmm. and... Um, I think it has affected them. You know, that town hall meeting that they had a a couple of weeks back was astonishing, where they basically, in effect, gave their people, um, it seemed to me, um, arguments that they could make themselves at the next barbecues and sort of said, here we are and we're fighting back. Now, I personally think I've seen in some of my News Limited colleagues, at whom I know, the sort of wariness that I reckon... (laughs) We've had at the ABC for the last five to six years. It's most interesting to watch. There's definitely something different. Uh, they're not as uh, comfortable, shall I say, right. in my opinion, as they have been. And I think that's a very interesting development. Did you feel in the ni- in the 1970s when you were working with the Australian? Did you feel there was a directive, or did you feel like there was much more balance uh, in the sort of reportage that you got to do? I think the whole tone was very different. I mean, the Australian was, um, I think, as still is in many ways, can get great stories. The mm-hmm. Australian, but I think. The the features page, the op-ed page, was definitely broader. Mm-hmm. Definitely broader. They had less. They didn't give as much column as me, column inches to some of their real um, sort of vener- the people who've been there for years and mm-hmm. years. I don't know why they don't, in fact, cast the net wider. I, I'm quite puzzled by it. Um, also, I mean, I do think Chris Mitchell, the ex um, editor in chief, who was in many ways an ex exceptionally talented person, but he was the one who came to the view that, I mean, he followed some things absolutely to the, he just did it to the last letter, like the Aboriginal welfare. But a lot of other stuff, like he was the one, I think, who really ramped it up about the ABC Mm -hmm. because they got all these clicks coming through. You know, they had, as soon as you put ABC in it, bang, apparently they just came through. I think the tone shifted to be a much more emotional, combative tone under Chris. You've been with the ABC for four decades. Mm. On and off. Uh, on and off. You did, you know, there was obviously you um, left a couple of times and mm. went to TUE and, and, and Network 10. But you've seen many shifting tides. Mm. The space the ABC occupies used to be very much the boring middle, I guess, but it's now contested from all sides of the political debate. Mm. The ABC are under enormous pressure. Ultra-left woke journalists Mm. have become very anti-ABC and anti-the middle. And then there's the usual criticism from the right that there's this ideological bias. Uh, Do you think it's... Do you still believe in objective journalism? And how do you? What are the changes that you've seen at the ABC through these sorts of criticisms? Look, it's a terribly important question, and um, I do still believe in objective journalism. I'll tell you what I believe in. I believe in the compact I have with my listeners that they know I'm trying for it anyway. Mm-hmm. So whether or not I fall short sometimes, they know that that's my motive. I think. I hope they do anyway. That's my aspiration because I believe it's worth the candle. You know, I, and I believe if if you give that. Up, it's such a big loss. Um, to, to I think you sink into sort of a cynicism or a sort of ruthlessness or a flabbiness, you know. So, so just the mere effort to strive for it, I think, is so vital. I think the trouble, the big 
challenge for the ABC, which I love desperately, not only as a place to work, but I believe it's such an important institution in Australian life, is that we've got this big, bruising, multicultural society, Mm -hmm. which is almost too big for anybody to get their hands right around at the moment. So I do think that we are, we could be better covering the sheer breadth of Australian life. Um, I think it's extremely difficult to keep up with it all. I think that that business of like the, the critical mass, which I've always been brought up to believe this, strange enough, I actually think my Irish Catholic background prepared you for that sort of broad middle brow Australia, which you could be relatively confident you had good instincts about. And then, you you know, you were always very conscious of, of, of other sides, but it's much more complex now. Gosh, it's hard. You know, just a place like Sydney, it's just a hugely complicated place. So how do you... How do you build that in and have a confidence in your tone and your voice while knowing you've got to serve these different groups? Well, I've put a lot of time into trying to think about it, and I think the ABC could be doing that better. I'm not just talking about whether, whether, you know, you need more people in the front of house. I don't mean that. I mean at a much deeper level. How do you divide up your money, you know? Yeah. How do you you keep it classy? I know it's a totally non-new word, but I still believe that we have got to be very careful. The idea that we sort of adapt to the mob, I don't agree with it. Right. I think we have got to serve educated Australians. We've that is our point of difference. That's where market failure occurs. Or Educate those, those that want to be educated. That's right. As well. Or yeah. those who yeah. want to be educated. Yeah. A yeah. very, very important question because, you know, a lot of the people whom we knew we served in Radio National years ago when I used to do all the Life Matters, we knew we had a very strong people with de- proportion of people with degrees and we had a very strong proportion of people with primary education who didn't have degrees but wished they had, you know, people mm-hmm. who worked on wharves. Well, whom we lacked were those people in the middle. So, you know, that, that's a classic example. So this takes very good leadership and thinking through because it's sort of like a commentary on the society as a whole. The current criticism of the ABC from coalition governments, it's, it's not exactly new and it's been from both sides of the political aisle. Uh, if you look at the Hawke-Keating years, both of those governments were often none too happy with mm. the coverage they received from the public broadcaster. But to my knowledge... And, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't the same sort of vindictive retaliation in terms of funding cuts that we're now seeing from the Morrison government. And you were part of the ABC's quite extraordinary coverage of the Gulf War mm. in 1991, which the then Prime Minister Hawke criticised as loaded, biased mm. and mm. disgraceful. And you've spoken about the Hawke government at that time putting pressure on the ABC's then managing mm. director, David Hill. Was there... Was there funding cuts threatened? Was there, if you can think, but I know this was, you know, 1991, so mm. it's a long time ago, but... Um. Uh, yeah, look, to be honest, I think they it was pretty tough from Hawke. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, wartime, you know, it, highly emotional. That's the thing to learn when you're reporting on wars, even at a distance. My God, what a, happened during the Falklands War when I first sort of stumbled into that and then during the Gulf War One, which wasn't, of course, Gulf War Two, which was even more. Uh, look, it was pretty willing, I think. And, you know, what I discovered at the time was basically... Um, right-wing Labor was mm-hmm. very ambivalent about the ABC. Right. Left-wing and centre-left Labor was much more comfortable. Right, Those right-wing boys, you know, they... <laughs> 
they weren't super fond of us either and they were much, in a way, much more fond of the commercials. But they sighed and they knew they had to live with us. Yeah. That's how I would put it. Um, whether I ever got the feeling they liked us, quite frankly, I didn't. Right. I didn't. I, d- I thought that they sighed and, you know, yeah, tolerated us. I think... Um, there certainly seems to be, I think there are some issues between the, you know, the coalition, not not the Nats. I mean, we've always said the Nationals will save the ABC because it's so critical in mm-hmm. the, like, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. if ever we're into real bother, you can usually, we've got to be sure that the Nats yes. are on side. <laughs> and th- there's no doubt the coalition party room massively assisted, I would argue, by the Murdoch press goes right into that coalition party room and they do seem to get I think they get locked into a sort of them and us it becomes mm-hmm. the sort of almost an enjoyment of the combat then this is what I happen to think is is very much to be rebutted and I say that to my colleagues within as without you know like I remember Jonathan Holmes whom I think is a very good observer mm-hmm. he wrote that in that little series that Melbourne University Press did on this and on that, you know, they on forbearance, on love, and they had all various people. He wrote one on Auntie. Right. It's really worth getting out. It's a very good little uh, essay by Jonathan, right. who writes beautifully. And he he said at the end of that, he said my, which I think only came out at the end of last year, my my real worry is that we, in all the shakeout that's happening with media, we have two media groups left the Murdoch Press and the ABC, and both are seen to represent, broadly speaking, two different tribes of Australia. That is a bad outcome for the ABC, he said. Now, I agree with him. I th- it's the last thing we should be thinking. Like, I don't want to be in that playing in that little patch. And, and I... You know, it's tempting to do so. If, you know, people sort of say, oh, well, you know, we'll make sure that we we represent this. No, 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 no. We, we should be much broader than that. And strangely enough, what I've come to gradually realise is, and I didn't think this for all along many of my years, is that the news current affairs part of the ABC, which I've always thought of as our shop window front, and it probably is, but actually I've come to see that the cultural part of the ABC, Classic FM, the um, War on Want, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the the Reef stuff, the, the, the uh, Mental as Anything, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, all of that is critically important in terms of persuading some of those people in Canberra that they must not undermine us. So it's not just that um, news gathering, which actually people can get lots from elsewhere, as I do now myself. Absolutely. You know. So that's a huge shift. Now, I, the news people, if they're listening at the moment, they'll hate me saying this <laughs> because news does believe as we, you know, that we're the centre of the world. Well, I don't know that we are anymore. I think we've got to subtly see a broader role. Do you, because of the sort of work that you, you you've actually worked across, um, you've worked across so many different, you, you've done print, you've mm-hmm. done television, you've done radio, and within that, you also, you were at channel, you were at Network 10 mm-hmm. for a number of years mm-hmm. on 10 Eyewitness News, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's very different to what, say, totally. you do now or what you did on Compass. You, it's, you know, it's breaking news, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't allow for a lot of long-form discussion that's just not the format and that's not what it's there to provide and then the last three decades you've really spent I I feel 
going, I, I can see the enjoyment you get out of it. Mm. It's conversation. It's uh, the dialogue that you get to have between people. Uh, what do you think, have you seen many news people take the same journey that you have in that way? Very, what a perceptive question. Uh, no. And, and for me, it was, there was a critical moment at the end of the Gulf War One when we'd basically used up our budget and the head of News and Current Affairs, Peter Manning, who was so good to me during the dramas with Hawke, mm. he said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, why can't I can't continue on? He said, no, you've got to get yourself a specialty and um, choose it. And it was a bit of a shock and I knew he was on my side. I mean, I think if it had been somebody I respected less, I would have told him to get nicked, if you know what I mean. But I knew he was on my side and I sort of went off in a tush, you know, huffy thing and then thought, okay, he's inviting me to think what I really want to do. And that's when I made the decision to move into what you might call sort of social affairs reporting, which at the time, my husband, Ian Carroll, who was a good old newsman from the age way back, and, and he said to me, you're going into a ghetto. I can remember. You're going into a ghetto area. You know that? And I said, well, I want to be in that ghetto, if that's what it is. Uh, all my friends, because we were all having babies yeah. and so that's what we're all talking about. So I'll happily go there. Well, that was a very big decision, I now realise, mm-hmm. because it it sort of forced me out of that, all of those codes that I'd taken as just... I don't know, like the tablets, you know what I mean, into this different area. And, of course, I then, with my colleague Joe Upman, we grew that so that we started breaking stories and we were doing, you know, we made social affairs um, a much bigger round than it had been. And you're referring, of course, to... To Life Matters. To Life Matters, to life which matters. you started yes, in 1992 yes, and yes. it's still going yes. to this day. Oh, it's one of the proudest. I think it is probably the proudest part of my career is that program. We started it off and then it's come had various iterations and it's still just doing fantastic work. But uh, that you've, uh, finding your own voice, which is what I say to young journalists, you know, find your own voice, particularly women, you know, and see that both literally and metaphorically, you know, there's a bit you've got to jump, you know. You've sometimes got to jump into the ether and think, I I'm not sure. I'm certainly not surrounded by the comfort zone, and it may not work. You know, risk means risk, but it did work for me. Mm-hmm. I I just loved it. Do you, Do you think there is that? There's still that sort of snobbery that remains about you know women's issues, soft social issues. issues. Soft yes, issues. yes, yes. I'm afraid there is. There is most definitely, and it exists among women female journalists as much as male journalists. In fact, you could even argue that a lot of the male journalists are more ready. They're quite game and they're quite... um, I think they're taking sometimes bigger risks and the women... I understand it, but the women have had to learn about the conventions, you know? Do you think that's because that men, though, are allowed to take those risks? Yes. Nobody's going to deny a man... If he wants to go back to covering politics and hard news and, and, and things well, things that are considered that, that sort of upper echelon or that you know that, those more intellectual subjects, if he wants to return to that, he's probably not going to come across any defiance or people saying, oh, well, no, you've sort of been covering... You know, you've crossed over. You've crossed over. <laughs> you know, you've sort of... I don't think you're quite up to that, whereas women, uh, once they do cross over, can often fall into that. Yes. Yes. I, look, I agree. I think you're quite right, and I think it probably does explain... Um, a lot of women being unprepared to do that. I mean, I think I, I know how much 
Now I had quite a, a profile, so I wasn't doing mm-hmm. it from a compl- you know a no, no influence at all. You but weren't building I, your reputation on n- it. N- no, that's right. And I made a decision. I thought, well, blow it. I, I'm I'm stuck here. You know, at the end of the Gulf War, I'm I'm stuck. I'd better make a decision, otherwise I'm going to be back into the sort of general more of the newsroom, you know, covering fires sort of thing. And I didn't want to do that. I actually didn't think I was especially good at it. So I went to where I thought I was better. Right. I mean, I, well, yeah, I, I decided to trade on my strength, so I wasn't sure anybody else would see it. But I did – it's funny when you look back and you think, God, gee, I did – yeah, there was – you know, like Norman Swan was very mm-hmm. important. I mean, see, he was a sort of powerful man inviting me to think like that. He sort of basically said, I want to set up this new program and um, I want to emphasise this and I want it to change because it was called um, oh, About Children, I think it was called, um, before that. And uh, he said, I want, I want it to change. So whether I would have done that on my own is a moot point. Right. So I did have that that powerful male invitation, and then I went for it, and but I loved it, and of course then and I didn't, you know, I didn't actually think I'd ever do general news again. In fact, my husband at the time said, said "Well, if you go and do this ghetto ghetto work," he said, <laughs> "You know, you could be closing the door on general news." And I said, "Well, you know, I was all, yes, well, I'll do just that." I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> but you know, look at me now. I'm allowed to, you know, I do the breakfast show on Radio National um, often now, which is the most general of general mm-hmm. news. And I thought to myself, well, there you go. It took a few years, but because I was still, that's what I was, basically, a, you know, a generalist journalist. And what I love about it is the fact that you, I mean, it's so broad what you get to cover. Yes, it is. The news stories mm. and then, the you know, the more social discussions that you have. And it's a bit longer form as well, it which is, is beautiful. It's a hard program, though, you know, like it's three imagine. hours. You just have to pivot pivot, pivot. You you know, you, you do your work the night before, you get all your briefs and, you know, I just force feed your brain information. Yeah. Um, 10, 11, 12 briefs and, you know, often quite complex briefs and you just have to learn, that's enough, I'll do move on to the next, you know, and then you have to you just have to get there and of course there could be a dramatic developing story. It's thrilling, but my goodness it tests you wow keeps you on your toes <laughs> oh, <I can> imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well that's great because it keeps us on i think the listeners are kept on their, good, their good. tones on their toes in that sense as well because you just you just always going oh i never thought of that or i never would have even an issue i never would have even thought about i don't suppose you, you happened to hear my interview with andrew cotter the olive and mabel man did you? i did oh, yes just adored <laughs> that. that's that you know english um uh, unemployed underemployed yes. sports broadcaster who, who did this wonderful stuff on the net about his two Labrador dogs, Olive and Mabel. Gosh, I love that. <laughs> I thought it was. I, I actually remember when it um, when it happened at the time. I thought it was hilarious. And then, yeah, no, that was a great interview. It's the light and the shade. You well, know, see, times. that's the joy of it that you can, you know, you can, you, like, the when you were younger, people would say to you, "Well, do you, do you really want to do that?" You know, like if you're not doing sort of, you know, Canberra politics, you know, yes. are you real? Oh, well, truly, you know, that's so. There's tedious. more. <laughs> <laughs> There's more out there. And and the problem is as well, I think a lot of journalists um, get caught up in uh, the politics of politics and don't always uh, discuss the policy in politics, which is really what we should be covering. Um, I also want to talk about Compass because... Oh, yes. Um, now, that was, I think, 1997 mm. and... 1998 until um, two years ago. Yes, yes. Mm. And that was... What's always interested... Because obviously, the, you don't really get to hear about religion except through I guess the 
the eyes of there's Christian radio around and there's Christian television and Christian uh, there's a Christian arm of the media, mm. but Compass was very different from that. It mm. discussed religion and different religions from a more intellectual theological point of view. You you were raised Irish Catholic, mm. um, but you I, I'm guessing. You don't exactly subscribe to the institution, but there's more... Well, see, strangely enough, I still do. Um, I actually believe in institutions, and I think that the... I mean, I'm incredibly affected by the fact that the biggest supplier of charity works in Australia, outside the government, is the Catholic Church. And so, because it's so hopeless at spreading that message itself... I wasn't aware of that. No, you weren't. I can see the look on your face. That is the truth. Therefore, there are millions conceivably, certainly hundreds of thousands of very vulnerable Australians who would be in deep shtuk if it weren't for the centre cares, which is the Catholic, that's the the centre cares in uh, um, all all various states and all manner of outreach is critically important let let alone the hospital work, the school work, the marvellous retraining work. See, it's just so important and so I get really frustrated with people who who are, what's the word, cavalier and ignorant about the role of the institutional life of the Catholic Church, which has made a mess of it of late. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Complete mess of it. I know that. And they're effectively on their knees and they're still not turning sufficiently to mm-hmm. it. They're very committed. Like there's very, it's a very talented people in the in the Catholic laity and the bishops still don't know how to properly turn to them and look that's another whole story but I um, look I suppose I think that there isn't nearly enough curiosity in the general media for the belief systems of the community I put it like that it's it's it's, it's religion it's spirituality it's it's search you know all all the very good surveys show there's an immense amount of what you might call spiritual search on in the Australian community, mostly under the radar. And it's not done. And journalists are hopeless at actually discerning uh, that people might want to say more if only they were asked, you know. Uh, And you don't have to go all holy Joe, you know, Mm -hmm, to use an mm -hmm. old phrase, by asking that question. Like, I think it's a real gap, actually, in a lot of the coverage, particularly in news and current affairs. There's there's no doubt it's still, there's a lot of wariness, you know. Or if she goes there, like, where will that take us? And that'll take us in down rabbit holes that we don't want to go. So you're very careful if if you've got that interest but there's quite a lot of journalists who do. They just learn to keep it under wraps. Okay. That, that, that really is fascinating. I mean, but I always did. I mean, I always quite enjoyed watching Compass because I really liked the... You didn't have any those sorts of discussions anywhere else no. that were happening. Do you, miss, do you miss working on that program? I miss... See, I don't miss television that much, I have to say. Okay. I, I missed... I made a decision to focus a little bit more. You know, I just thought, right, I'm doing too much. And... So I now do about five big interviews a year for Compass. That's yes. the new role I've got and everything. Mm-hmm. And I've got a, you know, a couple of ones coming up that I think will be very good. But I, the fronting up, do you know what was really eventually, and even though I was so proud of Compass, the voiceovering, you do those big voiceovers, mm-hmm. they are very tiring. Voiceovering for complex documentaries means 
really putting yourself in the hands of the producer Mm -hmm. who's done, I always see myself, anyway, you you ask them what do they want to achieve, what tone they want to achieve. You've got to really perform candidly. And if you've got very difficult um, accents uh, in there as well, I'll tell you what, you emerge a puddle. If you've got an hour-long doco, as I occasionally had to do, oh, my God, they were hard. And I eventually decided that that's what I... I didn't have the energy for that anymore. I, I wanted to focus more on the radio. I've done a little bit of, um, of, of voiceover, so I, I kind of understand what you mean because it is it is very tiring. You're getting... Oh, yeah. I, I almost liken it to acting in a sense. It is quite. Being directed. It's, mm. you know, and you're getting feedback on, no, tone more like mm. this. You know, the, the sort of mm. constant feedback, you're really trying to mould yourself. You're not being yourself. You're trying no. to mould yourself no. to fit the piece. It's quite... I think it's actually a highly intelligent thing. Mm. Um, you've got a really... Um, you're a broker, a servant of others' creativity, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. It's your voice, but you you want to know what they are trying to achieve. So you've got to listen and then observe. And sometimes they can be very aggravating, you know, yeah. do this again and again. And, I, you know, I remember saying to one man who was trying to get me to do a particular Hebrew, and I finally said to him, that is as good as you'll get. Now, I'm trying. <laughs> I've given you all that I can give you. And I'm essentially an Australian woman doing this. And that's what the audience knows. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Putting the foot down. Um, well, touching on, you said you didn't, uh, you don't really miss television as much. No. Um, now, I, I really wanted to ask you, you've, you've done all three of those mm. big mediums. You've uh, started your career uh, in newspapers with the West Australian mm. then with Rupert Murdoch's The Australian. Uh, you then went into television, hosted, co-hosted Nationwide, uh, The National. Mm. You uh, went to uh, Network 10 and Eyewitness News. And then, of course, uh, Compass. And then in radio, you uh, you had a program on, on 2UE at one point. I did, indeed. Of course, you Taking start- over from Ita. Ita was the... <gasps> Well, yeah, isn't yeah, that yeah. interesting? She was one till four, and then I took it over. And I was uh, Alan Jones and I used to do a cross. So how about that? Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> God, they were very different times. They were they? very different days. <laughs> <laughs> and um, of course, as we've mentioned, you know, life matters, uh, and and now mm-hmm. Saturday Extra. What are the three big differences that you've seen between uh, newspaper journalism, television journalism, and radio journalism? Um, I think that um, newspapers forces you to put your thoughts down with that awesome thing, someone's going to read this. <laughs> it's going to last, even if it becomes, um, you know, toilet paper or it wraps up the fish and <laughs> chips, you know. It's someone, it's something incredibly durable. And so if you're, you know, assembling a, a very complex inquest, in, mm-hmm. for instance, they were some of the hardest courts I did. You know, you go be sent off and I'd do an inquest on a murder that someone, or, you know, a terrible loss of something. And it was an open finding. My God, they were hard. And, you know, you've got the grieving family tra- and and suddenly our charge is going to be laid or not. Oh. But someone was going to read it mm-hmm. and more to the point you know somebody the chief justice might read it or whatever so there was that sort of durability then I found television television there's no doubt television makes you famous yeah and then you know you get things like you walk up and somebody to get on a plane and they say oh we might bump you up to first class children. yeah that's <laughs> look there's no doubt that's gorgeous it's fun and it drives you mad sometimes but it's fun and then radio is the 
It's the most versatile media of them all. Of them all. It's, a, it's a blast. It's such fun. You know, I've, there are people who've that they've years, done years and years on television, which is so much more um, controlled, actually. Mm-hmm. I think the 24-hour stuff is more like radio. Mm-hmm. There's no, about, no doubt about that, and they have to pivot and react and so on. But Be very dynamic. Yeah, yeah. much more. But radio... You know, radio people are just the most adaptive people I have ever met. They, they're they up to date. They turn on a dime. Um, they're funny. Um, they're, they're fast and they're so efficient. That's, that's what radio asks of you. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I'm biased, but I agree. Now, I'm going to – I can't let you go without asking about – you've seen a lot of regime changes mm. at the ABC over mm. the years – the managing director of the ABC is usually sort of the face of the ABC and is usually the one, you know, fronting up to uh, government and, and, and media and really, really speaking for the ABC. But we've noticed, of course, since Ida Butros's appointment as chair, uh, we're seeing a lot more of Ida than we are of, say, David Anderson, who, who she appointed. Um, how are you finding the current regime and how do you think Ida's handling the current pressures? Because the last number of weeks has been phenomenal, really. Yep. Super tough, I yep. think, for Ida and uh, David. Um, look, it is different. She was the captain's pick, you know, of mm-hmm. uh, the Prime Minister. And obviously Ida comes with an incredible um, profile of her own and a sort of chutzpah of her own. Um and David has come right through the system sort of thing. Look, I feel for them very much. I mean, I think they're managing it as well as possible. I do think that the the letter from uh, Paul Fletcher, the Minister for uh, Communications, is, is a big issue myself. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very mm-hmm. big issue, and I don't think it'll quite go away yet. Um, I, I think that they... Are, I suspect that the argument as to how you position the ABC when you've got people inside that party room who who feel it's okay to say, as they did, what, in 2019, let's privatise the thing and mm-hmm. get, get no pushback. That was a big shock to me, that those young libs came up and basically proposed that this critically important institution be privatised and, and, in effect, jettisoned, you know. And I have to say, it offended me deeply because I know they all use it. Mm-hmm. Without the ABC, even if it drives them mad at times, they what would they read and see and think and be be taken into, you know? And they just completely, to me, played cavalier about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was there. There was no debate, if you recall, on the floor of the. Uh, no. uh, and I remember people saying that people like Nick Griner, whom I've got a lot of time for actually, who was in the chair, sort of mm-hmm. thought. Well, just let's get on. They knew they were never going to take it up, and they just wanted to move past it. Well, I don't think that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it ushered in a time. It's it's not easy. I don't think to be there at the ABC with such. So even the ma- amazing coverage of of uh, the bushfires, which mm. I do think the ABC was. Absolutely extraordinary. I was so proud of it. And then to just morph into the into the COVID and then to do the follow-up. You know what I thought was really, really impressive? That news put in an enormous amount of resources into going back to those people in the fire zones after the fires had long gone. Now, we've not done that in the past. And that was a very much a response to the sense that we had to be seen to not just forget about those people. And... 
it's still I, I don't think we've I would love to see some overt praise I must say um, we're now, you know, we're the, the head of the digital take-up. Like we've got a lot of younger people reading us, so there's an incredible appetite we've discovered, news that's discovered for people reading our stories. Now, that has obviously annoyed a lot of the commercial outlets even more because they say, well, you're competing with us. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say, yeah, but if we weren't there, we would be sidelined, just like years ago, you know, Sir Keith Murdoch didn't want us to go into television. He just right. wanted to stay in radio. Where would we be? I think it's not an. I think it's a very tough time. I thought it was interesting that I mean, ABC and and this often is the way when there is a big crisis happening and a big news story, ABC becomes the most watched, tuned into um, news source uh, in the country. And I remember when those numbers came out, and it wasn't long after that, the the funding cuts were mm. were handed down. It almost seemed. Hmm. This is a bit of a threat to us. Look, those funding cuts were the ones left over from the previous. They came under Malcolm Turnbull. Mm-hmm. I feel quite strongly about this. People mm-hmm. don't quite realise. Okay. He introduced them. And uh, at the time, I remember vividly, I think it was $87 million, and mm-hmm. I can remember it was buried away and I was listening to the budget and w- there was no warning. Right. Normally there's warning and, you know, your corporate affairs people get onto it and so on. There was no warning and there it was buried. And I knew how much news had already gone through and I was gobsmacked at that. And, of course, my always my thoughts instantly go to, well, is Radio National going to be in the gun? Because mm-hmm. we are not cheap, because we do do a great deal of research. It's it's heavy, labour heavy, mm-hmm. and I think it's different to a, a lot of what else is on. And it struggle, you know, it hangs on by fingernails, frankly. Um so I, th- I found that devastating, and that was under Malcolm Turnbull, who, you know... Ke- and isn't that funny? And now he's become the very strange bedfellow of uh, Kevin, Kevin Rudd. Rudd. Go in- figure. Mm, okay. Very Can interesting. We- yes, it'll be, ve- it'll, be, it'll be very interesting. I think there's a combination... This is my candid view, is mm-hmm. there's a combination of humility and, um, and uh, what's the word, confidence required. So... Mm-hmm. We've got to know that people turn to us and how vital that is. And all the research from around the world is where you have public broadcasters that are active, you have less polarisation. That's very much the the discovery Mm -hmm. around the world. So that is a tangible benefit to the Australian population. But we've also got to accept, I think, humbly, that we are not in control of, of... all of these different component parts of this amazing country now. And we're not necessarily doing a brilliant job of all of it. And we've got to work out. We've always got to be adapting and looking and learning. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got to serve a wide range and we've got to be careful of our language. And so that's the humility required. Both things are true. Geraldine Doog, I hate to leave it there because I could talk to you for another couple of hours, but um, I'm guessing you've got places to be. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining Thank us you, on Tina. Fourth Estate. Thank you very much. That was broadcaster and journalist Geraldine Doog. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. 
We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Thanks for listening. 